As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show podcast and an episode where we do something that Ticketmaster customer service have never done before. We answer questions. Unlike Ticketmaster, we'll bring you entertainment without needing to remortgage your house. And unlike Ticketmaster's refund policy, we won't keep your money for no good reason and make you have to get your credit card company involved. Woo! My name's Ryan Bailey. I'm going through some stuff with a popular ticketing agency, <laughs> which I won't name at this point. And joining me today is a man who's going through some stuff with CONCACAF World Cup qualification, Taylor Rockwell. I- I still think I would rather deal with CONCACAF over uh, having to deal with any sort of customer service. The Bill Burr line, everybody's sorry and no one can help, feels very, very accurate from my experience. So yeah, I'll go (laughs) CONCACAF where everybody is just sort of sad if you're a USMNT fan. Well, I'm just sort of sad using this particular ticketing uh, agency, which I've not (laughs) referred to by name at all at this point, Taylor. So um, should we have a sad off? I feel like it's been strongly inferred. I think it's been strongly inferred and implied at this point. (laughs) It has indeed. Uh, joining us also today is a man who still loves qualification and still loves the Ocho and who lives by the mantra, if you can dodge a red, you can dodge a ball. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> I mean, is it wrong, though? Is that mantra wrong, Ryan? I just love how you use this introduction to just air your personal grievances. <laughs> I think you should do that more often. Just take more shots, even though Graham's not here. I think you had to put that energy somewhere and you chose a particular ticketing agency. I mean, I ran a risk because they might be a sponsor one day, Joe. But um, they won't be anymore. <laughs> they won't be anymore, and Problem I won't solved. be very happy to talk positively about whoever that company might be, Joseph. But maybe we should. <laughs> I know we've done some podcasts about uh, USMNT's World Cup qualification campaign, Canada's one-one win, and so on. But I wanted to get from both of you um, uh, an assessment of how you feel about World Cup qualification, because I've heard both of you talk excitedly about it from the pr- perspective of US soccer fans, which is completely fair enough. I know, Joe, I think you've tweeted to the effect of, I'm so excited, I can't wait for these games. Now I feel like, you know the meme with Kermit with the hood over his face? Like, <laughs> yes, come to my side of not liking World Cup qualification very much. Joe, have you been dampened at all? 
Yeah, this isn't too fun, is it? It, It's not. It's not super fun so far. And I still do have hope. I think that's the best word to encapsulate how I was feeling before World Cup qualification. And that hasn't completely dwindled by any stretch. But the reality has certainly sunk in and the disappointing performances are starting to add up. So I certainly don't feel as joy-filled as I did before this past week. But I, I still have hope, Ryan. Maybe it's misguided, but I still have hope. That's the best way to be. Yeah, Ryan. I I blame I blame your format more than anything. I I blame the UEFA format for your boredom because as it is you're essentially it's the same criticism we have of the Champions League group stage basically that like it doesn't really matter you can kind of guess who's going to go through and only near the very end does it get like truly exciting. And, and I think on top of that you all have the Euros, you have the Nations League now and there are more competitive like events basically for European teams, whereas in the United States or in CONCACAF, we've got the Gold Cup, which is like sort of competitive, but it's also, it doesn't matter how far you get if you don't beat Mexico in the final or win the final, then it's going to be a failure. And so I think to some extent, World Cup qualifying is the opportunity for us to see how a competitive, ideally first choice uh, like squad does in meaningful games. And I think that's probably where a lot of the enthusiasm or excitement comes from, for me at least, versus for you. It's sort of waiting until the final couple games to see if there ends up being any drama, even though inevitably there likely won't be that much. Yeah, I think that's why I'm a bit down on international breaks in general, because as an England fan, there's very little peril in general for this team. And that's not a brag uh, by any means. It's just it's just not very mm-hmm. interesting to watch. And um, noting Arsene Wenger, who's now, of course, FIFA's chief of global football development, who is kind of on this train of pushing for a World Cup every two years. Uh, one of the points he makes is that fans don't want qualification to last a year and a half. He said it should be in a condensed four or five week period, which I think, Arson, is an idea you stole from me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, but, but I don't condone the two year World Cup thing. Anyone else feel anything about that, Taylor? Uh, yeah, Ryan, I agree with you. I do not want the World Cup to be every two years for many, many reasons. I like the idea of having the Euros in different, uh, you know, the Confederation tournaments. I think the World Cup would cause problems there. I guess everything would have to be in an off year. And then I also don't trust FIFA to use that for the benefit of growing the game. I trust FIFA to use that for an opportunity to make more money and basically dilute the meaningfulness of the World Cup. If you don't trust FIFA, Taylor, who can you trust in this world? That's what I ask. <laughs> Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. Yes! <laughs> Those are the two. Those are the two. Our good friends who try and sell you tickets to see Queen on tour, but don't quite manage it in some ways, <laughs> shall we say. It's not a personal um, tour, tour story I'm telling you. Let's move on, shall we? Um, and just remember, guys, um, Champions League's back next week so we can wash our hands of this international break. Do you feel like you need to wash mm-hmm. your hands of it or do you feel like there's, there's learning here? Or am, 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 am I being too harsh on it? No, no. I, I've got a hand sanitizer wipe already out of the pocket. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be using that. Hopefully, hopefully I won't need to use it on both hands after tomorrow. Maybe it's just my left hand that's gotten a little dirty yeah. throughout this window. But I am I'm stoked for Champions League. It definitely snuck up on me. But uh, we're going to be back in a hurry talking about some of those games. That's right. Soccer never ends. By the way, Graham Rutherford isn't here this week. He's on vacay. It's a shame because... My notes say that Scotland won a game. That can't be right. Yeah. That can't be right. I need to look that up again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Graham, is, Graham will be with us very shortly. He's enjoying some time watching only 14 or 15 games a day. Something like that, uh, I think, is what his plan <laughs> is going to be. Why don't we ask some listener questions, gents? And by the way, if you have questions for us, do send them in totalsoccershow.com slash questions. We don't pitch that often enough if you want to ask us something that we can answer on this very pod just like travis kurowski did guys 
Was this 2021 summer transfer window the most insane in history? If so, how does it rank? Asks Travis. Uh, Gents, clubs in the top five European leagues, according to The Guardian, completed 1,547 deals worth $3.6 billion dues. That's about the same amount Barcelona spend on coffee and stationery via Jorge Messi's <laughs> coffee and stationery company, I understand. <laughs> this was a crazy window, though. Messi and Ronaldo both on the move, of course, both in relatively unexpected circumstances. Jack Grealish, I think, breaking Man City's record uh, transfer for $100 million. Lukaku being sold back to a club who sold him for a lot less than they paid for him again. Barcelona signing players they couldn't even register initially, at least. Griezmann going back to Atletico. Lots of crazy stuff, Taylor, that I didn't expect, particularly that amount of money, $3.6 billion in the wake of a pandemic. I was expecting a little more austerity across the board, but here we are. Things be crazy. So I genuinely sort of forgot that Ronaldo moved to Manchester United for a minute there, at least when I was in the context of answering this question, because multiple times in my notes, I was like, well, maybe if like Messi or like and Ronaldo had moved, that's the only way a window could be crazier. Not realizing that they, in fact, had both done that this window. Wow. Yeah, I think. And then if you add in that uh, like Mbappe almost goes to Real Madrid and maybe that would have meant Erling Haaland moved somewhere. This had the potential to be the most insane transfer window of all time, I think, for all time. That those two moves or three moves didn't end up happening uh, maybe takes it down a few levels. But I still think those few levels are good enough for top spot. I have some nominees, but I think for... The volume of deals, the money spent, where that money was spent, and then some of the personalities that moved around and some of the personalities that moved back to clubs uh, really makes it that much of a monumental window. I'm totally, I'm totally with you, Taylor. Any any window that has Messi and Ronaldo both moving, yeah, I, I think almost has to be the top move ever. Then you add in all of the other craziness that Ryan mentioned, and some of the craziness that happened but didn't actually happen with Mbappe and Harry Kane and things like that. This window oh, yeah. was wild, and the fact that it came after the pandemic, like we've already talked about, or, or at least after the windows where the pandemic had the greatest financial effect on global soccer, that magnified it even more because we'd gone through a down year in terms of spending. Now to have these teams coming back and spending with reckless abandon, it's it's wild. And for me, it is the most insane transfer window of all time by a pretty decent margin. I think this might be the most insane soccer business, uh, off the field business year, if you count the uh, breakaway Super League as well, Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I mean, hey, it, it's it's not done yet, say the directors of Barcelona, Real Madrid, sure. and Juve. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, man, it's it's just, it's such a window. The thing I'm laughing about is that it's because so many deals happened, it is going to take a little bit of time, like Marcel Sabitzer moving to Bayern Munich. It's going to take me a couple games to be like, right, he plays for Bayern Munich now. And there's a few of those. Even Saul moving to Chelsea happened so late in the window that I, I have a feeling, even having had this discussion, when I first see him play for Chelsea, I'll be like, wait, who? What? What happened now? Like, it's there were so many moves that normally would be, you know, the top 10, the top 15 moves of the window. And instead, just because of the names that did end up moving around, I, I think it is deep and then the way they happen, that some of them are incredible values, some of them are freeze. As Joe said, a lot of them are rumor and speculation and ongoing sagas. And I think, yeah, 
It's it stands out for the insanity and craziness of the window. So Taylor, I think you said you had some other mm-hmm. nominees of other I windows. I, the, the only ones that sort of sprung to mind was I think 2011 mm-hmm. with Torres uh, moving yep. the Liverpool Chelsea deal, but that was a winter window, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's the one that I actually thought was really interesting. That the January of 2011 window was really fascinating because you have David Luiz. I mean, I guess from a Premier League perspective, mostly David Luiz going to Chelsea. I think for the first time, Ed and Jacko to Man City, and and it's sort of that next level of player coming into Manchester City and them strengthening in that way. And then, yeah, it's Torres to Chelsea, Carroll to Liverpool. And I kind of forgot that it was Luis Suarez to Liverpool in that window as Same well. Day. So that's that's a pretty big one. That's a pretty big window, but not, uh, not near the top of the list. The other ones I had would be... I think 2004, that that summer window, because that's when you see Chelsea bringing in a lot of the names that would become so important to them, like Drogba and Petr Cech, uh, Carvalho, Robin, uh, Manchester United signing Wayne Rooney that summer, Barcelona with Eto'o, and Zlatan going to Juventus, and of course, the legendary Jonathan Woodgate to Real Madrid transfer happens that (laughs) summer. So uh, what more do you need? Uh, I've got two more, but I don't want to steal anyone's thunder if other people have nominees. Joe, any nominees? Yeah, I've got 2009 and 2018. I think yep. those are both pretty big windows. 2009 yep. was Ronaldo to Madrid. And then you had Zlatan going to Barca. You had Kaká going to Madrid. Xabi Alonso going to Madrid. Benzema going to Madrid. Carlos Tevez going to Manchester City. That was a packed window. 2018 maybe didn't have quite the breadth of star talent moving, but that was Cristiano Ronaldo moving to Juventus, which was huge in that particular year. And then Mbappe moving to PSG from Monaco, which I think was also a really big one. There are a few others in that window as well, of course. But those two were both wild, just not as wild as this one, in my view. I'm going to steal Joe's thunder a little bit because Mbappe, I think that's a permanent yeah, deal true, summer, true. but he goes on loan the summer before. And that was my, my other nominee would be the 2017 summer when you have Neymar leaving Barcelona, Coutinho and Dembele both arriving and just the sort of seismic shift that happens there. And I think a lot of Barcelona's present problems are exacerbated by that window. And then, yeah, Mbappe going on loan to PSG, Lukaku to Man United, Morata to Chelsea, and it felt like it was going to be the other way around. And obviously, as we all know, Romelu Lukaku will never play for Chelsea again. Uh, he will only play for Manchester United, and overall, Morata will become a Chelsea legend. Uh, so I think that was that was an interesting one, again, for the kind of the big storylines I also had 2009 for basically all of Inter's business yeah. uh, and then some of the other moves that Joe mentioned too uh, but in the end I think 2021 for the sheer like breadth of the transfers and that it was so many different leagues because you have the Premier League mm. still spending we've talked about La Liga we've talked about Serie A moves and Inter's changing everything up uh, but then even in Germany with Bayern basically taking three key elements from Leipzig and the coaching carousel that happened there we like you could really spend any time with any league and come up with a lot of compelling stories definitely I love that 2009 window as well with the Ronaldo reveal at the Bernabeu in front of a full stadium yeah. and I've never felt Oof. more sorry for Kaká who one week beforehand right. I think he had 40,000 people his unveiling at the Bernabeu and then Ronaldo pulls in like 80 one week later he had like one week to shine Dukakar the poor poor guy on that multi-million dollar contract with one of the biggest teams in the world poor guy poor guy um I think not only did we see I don't think I, I sorry I think this is the best window we've had in history but I think we had a team who had the greatest window in history as well PSG yeah uh, no major losses in this window. I mean, like Florenzi and Moise Ken ended loan spells. But they picked up George, uh, Gigi Wijnaldum, Hakimi, Ramos, Donnarumma, Messi. And of course, let's not forget those Christian Dior suits. That deal just came in today. Big deal for them. 
Uh, all of those were free. Uh, Chris and Dior are paying them, uh, except um, Hakimi with a, a 60 million euro fee on that one. I can't imagine a team that's done better than that in a single window, given the, the, the status of those stars and the amount they cost. Joe, any, any thoughts on that? No, Ryan, I completely agree with you, and I'm so glad you brought that up. I think we've mentioned briefly on, on some past shows just how good this window has been for PSG, even outside of Messi. Like before they made that signing, they had already done phenomenal business, and then adding Messi to that, it's going to take some time to gel, obviously. It's going to take mm-hmm. them games to figure out how to put these pieces together. Pochettino's job is going to be really, really hard. But, oh my goodness, they have built a truly impressive squad, and I'm excited to see them over the course of this season. Taylor, I think, you know, PSG, their overall aim was to try and win a Champions League. That's what this ownership group wanted to do. But they've won a, they've won a, a window now. Is that not more important for a team who like money as much as PSG did? <laughs> I mean, I think for... It's important in a couple of ways. Number one, for just the the imbalance of money spent like versus value acquired. I think transfer market alone would have you uh, like pointing out that yeah, for Messi being free with an $88 million valuation, uh, Donnarumma, I think, also free $71.5 million. They did all right, PSG. But I also view it within the context of talking about the kind of calamity at Spurs and what summer they had in trying to find a new manager, and that there was that sustained effort to go back to Pochettino. And when they first engaged him or intermediaries or whatever it might have been, there was genuine interest. His family was still in London. He wanted to move back. He was interested, and it felt like maybe wasn't completely sold on PSG or was maybe already feeling the pressure. And I just have to believe that every single signing this summer was like, okay, maybe I'll stick. Okay, I might stick. I'm definitely sticking. I'm never leaving. This is my club for forever. Like, you can't, I mean, unless you don't want to see what it's like to manage, like, an all-star team competitively over the course of one season, I I don't see any other reason why you wouldn't want to manage PSG uh, for this season and likely beyond. Yeah, Taylor, interesting when you look at the numbers as well in terms of which leagues have spent what. I've run them here. The Premier League spent $1.9 billion this summer. That's over three times as much. It is a lot. It's over three times as much as the uh, La Liga spent, $575 million. Uh, it's more than Serie A and the Bundesliga Liga combined. So there's a lot of disparity there between which leagues have spent what. And we expect that because there's more money in the Premier League. But is it an indicator of maybe, just maybe, Taylor, that some of the Premier League clubs have dealt with, they've weathered this storm of the pandemic a little better and they've been a bit more, a little more fiscally well behaved over the recent years? Uh, yeah, I think I think very broadly speaking, because I don't want to get into like who did what and when in COVID and who tried to furlough employees. But I think generally speaking, yes, and obviously a huge part of that is the TV revenue. But I do think there have also been other initiatives put in place to prioritize young player development. So even if you are getting a lot of money being spent, you're still getting because of homegrown player restrictions. We'll talk about more of those later. Uh, like I think you are still getting inflated fees for English players and domestic players. And so, but then if clubs are paying those fees to English clubs for those players, those clubs can then spend that money more. And there is a little bit of a cycle there. I think TV revenue, a huge part of it. But then also, yeah, I think there are more sustainable models and a lot of clubs learning to live within their means or continuing to live within their means and not overspending or investing some of the money when they go up to the Premier League into training facilities and infrastructure improvements that make them a more modern and therefore more attractive team and then they can go out and sign players and then they can work their way back up and I think different clubs have done a good job of basically approaching the amount of money in England 
in different ways, and it's not all following the same model. And so I think that's also a big reason why there is more freedom because there's clubs pursuing this type of player versus that type of player versus this age of a player, and, and I think you get that variety in there too. Joe, one last question on Travis's question before we move on. Uh, any favorite deals that took place this summer? We've obviously mentioned PSG have done very well with the names they brought in. It's hard to look past the fact they landed Leo Messi, but what about someone like Saul coming into Chelsea? They've got so much depth now in that midfield. You've got Conte, Jorginho, Kovacic, and now Saul. That's good good business, right, for them? It's huge, right? I saw – I didn't read the article, Graham. I'm so sorry. But I saw the headline, which I'm also (laughs) assuming you didn't write, Graham. So, again, two strikes on me. But I I saw Graham write a piece to the effect of – man, I'm treading on dangerous waters right now journalistically. But, like, writing a piece about how deep Chelsea's squad is and how it might be unprecedented in the Premier League. And I don't think I agree with that title necessarily looking at City's squad. But the work that Chelsea have done this window, also phenomenal. Probably not PSG level, but Lukaku, bringing him in, and that's the player I was going to highlight when you first started asking me that question, Ryan. He's a massive addition. We've talked about why, and we've already talked about some Chelsea games and how he's elevated them this season. Saul's another one. They have so much depth. He can play in that double pivot. He can help them play in a number of different roles in midfield. I think Chelsea deserve a lot of credit for the work they've done in this window with those couple of players coming in. Indeed. Travis, thank you so much for that question. That was a great one. Let's move on to one more from Keegan Line, who asks a curious one here. How come Mm -hmm. many goalkeepers choose the number 13 when the number one is taken? How come they don't choose number 12? Because wouldn't that be the next number up logically from 11? Good question, Keegan. Uh, I've got a couple of responses here, but not a direct answer, I'd say. Who wants to take this one? Joe, you got anything here? Yeah, I'll take a shot at it. And there's there's layers to this and layers that I still am really curious about because I could not find maybe the reason why certain goalkeepers wear one thing versus another thing. But I do know a couple of reasons why we don't see more goalkeepers wearing the number 12. So first of all, there's a couple of leagues in Europe that just don't let their goalkeepers wear number 12. La Liga is is one of those leagues. Uh, Their rules say that other than the jersey number one, goalkeepers can also be assigned jerseys 13 and 25. Number 12 is not on that list. The same goes for Liga, who gives goalkeepers 1, 16, and 30. And then Messi kind of reversed that a little bit recently with PSG. But those leagues just don't let goalkeepers wear number 12. And I, I would love to know why. And I spent a good amount of time trying to find out why. I could not. My other quick reasoning before I flip it back to you, Ryan, or over to Taylor is some teams just have the number 12 retired as a Seattle Seahawks style 12th man. We love our fans. We respect them kind of thing. So Bayern Munich and Werder Bremen are two of the teams that don't let any of their players wear number 12 out of a sign of respect to their fans. So those are my couple of of observations. And those are a couple of the explanations that I found while researching. I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you guys found. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I've, I've backed up most of what you said there, um, Joe, and the fact that many Bundes, most Bundesliga teams don't have a number 12 because it's that 12th man thing, because it's a, a shirt for the fans, which is an interesting angle there. And you're quite right in that uh, 13 is a traditional, and 25 are the only, one 13 and 25 are the only numbers you're allowed to wear in the Liga as a goalkeeper. And Taylor, is it is it more than just tradition at number 13 being the second goalkeeper in a shirt? And why... Maybe some keepers choose 13 over one. Uh, One logic I found in Italy is that 13 is a lucky number. 
It's actually an unlucky number in most world, but in Italy, it's a th- uh, it's the lucky number. It's uh, what they call fada tredici. Is uh, that means to make thirteen? That means when you hit the jackpot, and that's to do with back in the day, um, they had Italian pools. Pools is like when you um, guess a score of a bunch of games that coming weekend, and there'll be thirteen matches listed on this pool sheet. So if you hit the jackpot, you make thirteen. Lucky. Seventeen is the unlucky number in Italy. So there you go. That's maybe a reason why huh. some Italian goalkeepers might choose 13. Right. Taylor, any ideas on this question? I mean, I think, number one, I like the idea that goalkeepers are sort of inherently a little bit crazier than their uh, outfield counterparts. So maybe they embrace the idea of the unlucky number. They're going to turn it on its head and do their own thing. But then in, <laughs> in Italy, if it is a positive thing, maybe they go that way, too. Uh, I say I agree with Joe about it being a, a fan like uh, a sort of homage to the fans, I would say, not because of the Seattle Seahawks, but because of Texas A&M, so <laughs> in your face, Joe. Uh, and then the only other thing that I wondered, because I, I too like struggle to find a definitive answer, but I, I would extend it to it's tough to find a lot of outfield players who are famously number 12s. Like the one that kept popping up was Thierry Henry for France specifically, not even for Arsenal, except for, I think, in his return appearance. But aside from that, there's not a ton of number 12s. Like Cantona, I think, was one until he was given the number 7 shirt. And I wonder if maybe part of that is the, the fan the fan service aspect, but then part of it is that when you had the original uh, like numbers on the backs of the shirts, you had 1 through 11, and because that was your match day 11, you didn't have substitutions. So your 11 players were on the field, and that's it. I wonder if as they brought about substitutions, it just would have been very unlikely that you would be replacing your goalkeeper. And so you wouldn't have needed to kind of continue that numbering tradition with a goalkeeper. They would have been given, your backup goalkeeper, if you had one, would have been given a higher number, not the kind of next one in line. So that's my only other like possible explanation. But I think largely it's fan service, maybe some league restrictions, and maybe there's uh, some other little like supernatural elements. We'll go with luck. Supernatural elements? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Go- that's ghost how it works. Ghost number yeah. 12? <laughs> like, yeah, a- angels in the outfield. They, they give their, uh, you know, the... the uh, the spirits that haunt the fields that make things happen, they give them the number 12. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's my plot for a Disney movie. Patrick Swayze in that movie when they were doing that pottery, I think it was 12 minutes long, that scene. That may be why. <laughs> See, there we go. Yeah, there we go. All right, Keegan, thank you very much for that question. We'll be back with plenty more Logic. after this break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible 
to have it both ways. Mack Welder makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. Did you miss us? We're back. Listen to questions. Hayes Troyers has got in touch with this one. <laughs> Can EPL team rosters be changed outside of transfer windows? Can first teams promote under 21 or academy players at any time or only during transfer windows? For example, says Hayes, were Manchester United to find a brilliant midfielder in their under 21 or academy? Sure, sure. Could that player be promoted during the season or would Man United have to wait until the January transfer window to do so? Taylor, I come to you, sir. I've got, I, think I've, I think I might have this one, but I'll see if you corroborate what I found. From my, this is one of the ones that I sort of answered based on what I think is the case and then did some reading. I believe the answer is that yes, they can promote anybody, uh, from those, like, those U21 squads uh, within the limitation that they have to have been there for a certain amount of time. So you can't sort of find that loophole of you sign a really talented 18-year-old who would be starting for your first team if uh, Ilesh Moriba were to come to the Premier League. He can't be signed on on an academy deal and then immediately promoted to the first team. I think you have to have two years in the academy after the age of 15 or 16. Uh, But that aside, I think, yeah, they basically leave it open so you can bring in uh, any anybody as long as they've been in the academy because if you didn't have that otherwise like you could only bring in certain positions and you'd have to have you know a 31 year old filling in in a couple of different spots it would not incentivize the youth coming through like i think they want to have happen indeed that pretty much corroborates what i found certainly in the premier league uh, as we know premier league squads are 25 players 25 senior players the rule being that 70 a maximum of 17 non-homegrown senior players within that 25 but here's the kicker you're allowed unlimited under 21 mm-hmm. players so if they're registered at the start of the season as one of those unlimited under 21 players from the under 21s or the academy yes they can be brought in at any time par exemple arsenal 25 man squad they've got over 60 under 21s on contract and scholars uh, last season and this season bukayo saka and emil smith rowe both senior under 21 players they're not actually within the 25 man squad they sit within those un limited under 21 players and obviously Saka's played for the first team for quite a few seasons now uh, Reese Nelson uh, on that list as well so that's basically it. as you say Taylor if you sign someone and cheekily try and bring them in 
that's a no-no. But if they're there from the outset, uh, that means you can bring them in. Whether Manchester United have got a brilliant midfielder they want to bring up at this point is another question altogether, though, Taylor. <laughs> this is true. Ryan, the thing that um, these... I don't think they do, unfortunately. I would like them to. They've got a lot of young players. I'm really excited about some of them. Hannibal, we got a player named Hannibal. Come on now. Uh, but I don't <laughs> know if that's going to be the difference maker. The thing that I always forget when I, when I read about these topics... A trivia question for you both that you all may have stumbled across. There is an England international who has 45 caps who is not a, a homegrown domestic player. Do you know who that player is? Owen Hargreaves? Uh, he is, he, no, he is still an active player right now. Oh. He still has knees, this player. <laughs> Sorry. Less active for England uh, than he is for his current club, where he has over 200 appearances in the Premier League. Hmm. Is it Raheem Sterling? It is not. It is a defensive midfielder slash defender with a shaved head who plays in London somewhere. Oh, uh, the Dire Wolf. Eric Dyer, that is correct, <laughs> because he was in the Sporting Academy, yes. uh, came through the Academy of Sporting, and then moved to Spurs on a senior deal in 2014 at the age of 20. Uh, so did not meet those rules and thus does not count as a homegrown player. And it makes me then wonder if, if that's why... The fees quoted for him were like when he was in that sort of peak period weren't quite as high as I would have thought they would have been because he would have not counted as a homegrown player. So he doesn't give you that sort of uh, he basically further limits your roster as opposed to helping it. You've reminded me of the best scenes from All or Nothing Spurs with uh, uh, Eric Dyer messing people up and then angrily talking in Portuguese to Joseph. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I think, um, Joe, the other thing this reminded me of, uh, forgive me if I'm going at a tangent here, is uh, this is not to be confused with emergency loans. Uh, the Premier League uh, loan signings are only allowed outside of transfer windows in exceptional circumstances. Uh, and goalkeepers are prioritised in those exceptional circumstances. There have been some instances where clubs, I think like Liverpool, have tried to sign someone in a window and they've been told no some have been told yes it depends on the so it's a case-by-case basis basically but you'll remember joe um uh, in spain you can make emergency signings if you're barcelona you can steal strikers from lejanes called martin braithwaite for example <laughs> isn't that isn't that how it works i thought barcelona had their own sort of rules or maybe that just comes with messi who's now at psg breaking the goalkeeper squad number rule ryan i, I think i think you've got it <laughs> I think we do. Any more on that question, gents? I think we nailed that one. Taylor, all good? I mean, I'm, I am now, I am now like reading or like now inclined to read. I won't do it during the show, but Hannibal Mejri or Mejbri. Now I am thinking maybe, maybe this is what Manchester United needed. Maybe this is why they didn't need Eduardo Camavinga, who was one of my favorite moves of the summer, uh, because they've got Hannibal and they can win with him. And he's got the, the majestic flowing locks with the curls in them. Let, let's get him in that team. Let's get him on that field. Real killer, that Hannibal here on the field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's not enough Hannibals out there is it Hannibal Buress and him that's all I can think of there's the three and then uh, Hannibal who fought Rome those are, those are your three Hannibals <laughs> that I can think of excellent let's move from a Hannibal to a Matt Matt Goss not Matt Goss from Bross is, uh, is asking us if only the USMNT and no other team could play with unlimited subs in the 2022 World Cup what would their chances of winning be? Uh, gents, I'm not sure if Matt submitted this question before this international break or yeah. afterwards. My, my feeling is the chances of the USMNT winning the tournament, if they can make unlimited subs and no one else could, is still quite low. Joe. Yep. No, that's exactly what I have down. I think the chances would still be extremely low. Setting aside the disappointing start to World Cup qualifying, if we fast forward to November 2022 and the US men's national team is at the World Cup, I still don't think they're winning it, even if they have that unique advantage. The big advantage with 
the the unlimited subs is extra fitness, right? That that's the only major tactical advantage, on field advantage that I can see. So you can outrun people, right? You bring on people in platoons, or you bring on a player, and then you I mean, you can do hockey style, whatever it is. You have those unlimited subs to give you fresh legs on the field. The issue here at this level is I think professional soccer players at the World Cup and, and just players that generally are appearing in World Cups, they're too fit for that to be a big advantage. It would be an advantage, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it comes close to closing the gap between the U.S. and Spain or the U.S. and England or Argentina or Brazil, teams like that. I don't think subbing on Kellen Acosta in the 10th minute for Weston McKenna. Maybe that's not the best example right now. <laughs> Something on Kellen Acosta we'll for another central midfielder. I don't think that that really does you a whole lot in the first half, even if you can sub them back a few minutes later and keep everybody fresh. I don't think this really moves the needle for me. So that is the only wrinkle that that I disagree with you on, Joe, that if you were going indoor style with rolling subs and, yes. it, and it was – if we're going truly unlimited as opposed to the once you're off, you're off, but you can come back on, then you could go with a much more dedicated like – suicidally high-intensity pressing system because you only have to do it for 5, 10, 15 minutes and then you could get a break and then you can sub right back on and do it again. But that's not really the way the United States even wants to play. And and I think that that is only if you were building a team towards that being the case that you had unlimited substitutions. Whereas I think just in a more conventional usage, Berhalter, first of all, would have to use them before the 80th minute, so fingers crossed there. But then you you still can only make like so many substitutions before you're changing the overall just kind of chemistry of the team. And if you make too many too soon, or or you try to kind of like have half the team doing one thing and half the team doing another, it can open you up to as much vulnerability as the benefits it gives you of those fresh legs. I think if you gave the team a lot more time to train and sort of learn how to utilize the rolling sub system to to their advantage, then maybe it gives an advantage. I think, generally speaking, if you could make subs that other teams couldn't, I think it still gives you an advantage, but I don't think, to Joe's overall point, it closes the gap with those top-tier teams who I think could still find a way to defend and attack pretty effectively. So I think I maybe read the question wrong because I didn't think about hockey-style rolling subs, which might change the uh, the game a little bit. Let me add an extra wrinkle to this, gents. What if it was hockey-style rolling subs and you could have unlimited player? There's, there's 100 players on the bench ready to roll on, roll off. What if other teams couldn't make any subs at all? Would that make a big difference? Because I was wondering about that because... I mean, World Cup soccer, in tournament soccer, isn't typically frenetic. There isn't typically a high press. I'm thinking maybe a lot of big teams could get away without making a sub, and some sometimes do. Taylor? I think it depends on when you're, like, when we're talking about in the tournament. Because early on, I think there could be a, you ride your talent to get you through the win, and then in the next game, maybe that's where you rotate, knowing that you've got everybody and no subs. As you get into the knockout rounds and you will have tired legs and you will have, even if you have a player picking up a knock in one game, they've then got to see it out or they've got to sit out the rest of the game. So like that, that's pretty interesting. But I think because of the lack of substitutions, it makes managers get creative. But I think it really limits your ability to change the kind of state of the game. If things aren't going your way, it's a lot harder to change the momentum and to really fundamentally shift what the team is doing i guess you could like relay those instructions and hope that a central like a number six can become a number eight and a number eight can become a right back if need be but i think it makes it harder to adjust on the fly to what your opponent is doing for sure 
Joe, I'm having some fun with this now. I'm going to change the question once again. <laughs> what if the USMNT and no other team... Uh, USMNT could play with unlimited hockey-style rolling goals. subs, but it's the 2026 World Cup. What would those chances of winning be? Better. Certainly better, right? Because <laughs> at that point, it's safe to assume that the U.S.'s talent pool is going to be bigger. That, that's my issue with this question, is... The U.S. just doesn't have enough depth in the pool right now. They have more depth than they did four years ago, but they don't have enough depth in the pool right now or enough top-end talent for the extra boost from the bench to really make that big of a difference, at least in the original premise of this question. And I didn't even think that hockey-style subs might be outside of that premise. So we can even include hockey-style subs in there for the sake of this particular point. The U.S. just doesn't have enough good players to make it to make up the gap right now. And in 2026, that's hopefully going to be a different story from the U.S. men's national team perspective. They're going to have more talent. The players they have now are going to be better, and they're going to be players in that squad or in this 100-man squad or whatever it is that have more talent than the bottom end of the pool right now. So, Ryan, I, I still don't know if they're winning that 2026 World Cup with this particular stipulation, but I think they're closer to it. Joe, let me ask you this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the question then and remove <laughs> all of that and just ask you this. If Romelu Lukaku could play for the United States. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And everyone else is wearing blindfolds. What does that do to the team? Uh, it makes it better, right? I, Romelu yeah. Lukaku would be a huge addition. I still think... Like, that's what they're missing, right? Like, I mean, that's what... Like, like they need a goal scorer who can hold the ball up but can still get on the end of crosses and be really clever in the box and draw fouls and, I think, be that momentum shifter. And I think, basically, what I'm saying, Joe, is I agree with you that, like... If they had maybe beaten El Salvador and, and drawn Canada or the other way around and we had four points at this stage, maybe we'd be a little bit more optimistic. But because the problems with the current like pool as a whole are in pretty stark contrast right now, it makes me harder to think like, well, if we could rotate a bunch of strikers who maybe aren't going to be good enough at that level – we're still rotating a bunch of strikers who aren't really going to be good enough at that level. Whereas if we kind of addressed those major issues with a player or two, then I would feel better. This all goes back to the idea that teams that do qualify for the World Cup, if the United States does, I like the wrinkle that they should be able, each team that's participating should be able to draft one player into yes. the national team pool that isn't participating in the World Cup. I think that's fair. Yeah, I completely agree. And Taylor, to go back to your Lukaku question, yeah, if the U.S. gets Lukaku and De Bruyne and a few others, I think they would be in really great <laughs> shape. Hakimi, yeah, get yeah, grab Hakimi, snag yeah. a left back. I mean, now we're really cooking with gas. Yeah, yeah, Joe, if, if uh, the U.S. could have every Italian player eligible for them, how would they do, do you think? Or or what if the U.S. just takes England's roster and, and just tweaks the jerseys slightly and renames <laughs> no, them? Lose. I, I mean, I think we're in a lot better shape. We might not win. Yeah, of course. You're not, not going to win with England's squad, obviously. But, I mean, you're no. probably going to get a little bit closer. Shots were fired. I'm going to overlook that one. I'm taking the high ground. We're going to go to a commercial break and come right back with a few more listener <laughs> questions. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we're back. We're taking your listener questions such as this one from Ian Oldacre. Thank you for the question. Ian, what happens... If Ukraine and Russia, the national teams or club teams from those nations, actually meet in a tournament knockout round, does UEFA or FIFA have a contingency plan for this happening? I can't imagine, says Ian, a neutral nation would want to host this, nor would a referee want to be involved in such a potentially hostile affair. Great question and one that reminds us that um, soccer and politics can't really be kept separate because they are not separate indeed. Um, So yeah, there are plenty of nations out there with political hostility, active political hostility, Russia and Ukraine um, being some of them who are kept apart. Um, Russia and Ukraine, for example, were kept apart at the Euros and Russian and Ukraine clubs are kept apart in UEFA competitions. There are some other nations on that list, uh, on UEFA's list. There are Serbia and Kosovo, uh, national teams and club teams are kept apart, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Russia. Russia as well, Armenia and Azerbaijan, Spain and Gibraltar, and Man City and any Premier League team in a cup competition all must be kept apart uh, <laughs> by UEFA <laughs> rules. Um, but we had a situation, gents, at Euro 2020 where Ukraine and Russia were kept apart mm. in the group stage, but they could have actually met in the knockout stages. Uh, Ukraine went through as a third place team. They would have met Russia, if I'm right, at the semi final stage. If Russia finished second in the group, uh, in their group, which is Group B, instead of Denmark. Uh, also, one of the quarterfinals, uh, Ukraine's quarterfinal, could have been played uh, in St. Petersburg had things shaken out a little differently. So there were some potential pressure points there. But as far as I could tell from my research, Taylor, we can keep them separated at the group stage. But were they to meet, say, in the quarter or semi final? I don't think UEFA would like abandon it. They they let it ride, right? 
Yes, to amend the uh, old offspring lyric that Joe almost certainly doesn't know, you got to do your best to keep them separated. Uh, and yes, you would do that with <laughs> Russia and Ukraine, but if they did meet in the knockout round, then you would let that game go. I, mean, I think, if anything, it would be officiated more harshly just to try to make it like not bubble over and not let anything like come to the surface. And I think there'd be cards and suspensions for anybody who used it as an opportunity to make gestures or, or do anything sort of inflammatory. But I, I wanted to sort of make sure that was the case. And in doing some reading, I, I think we we have precedent for this of sorts in different ways. Uh, like we have England-Argentina in 86. That's four years after the Falklands War mm. when the two countries fought each other. So I think four years after an active war happening for the two teams to play each other maybe shows us one way that that can go, which is uh, controversial in 86, but not for a sort of like necessarily what happened uh, before the match is what happened on the pitch. But even Maradona talked about that being a motivator for him. In 1974 World Cup, we have East Germany making their only appearance at the World Cup, playing in West Germany versus West Germany in the same group. And so I think if they're not going to make huge moves to keep those historic, like that historic tension like apart, then I think basically they would just try to approach it as it's a game, we're leaving the political... Uh, issues out of it, and we just want the two teams to come together and put put out the best spectacle they can. That's the same thing they wanted when Angola played Portugal, former Portuguese colony Angola. That had led to a ton of red cards when they'd played each other before the World Cup in, in a, I think, a friendly in 2001 or 2002. But in 2006, when they played, it was just a one-nail win and not a ton to report. So those aren't direct parallels, but I think there is precedent for teams that have actively hostile relationships towards each other still being able to play a game on the pitch. Uh, Joe, first off, are you aware of the Offspring song "Come Out and Play"? In which, uh, how did you said it like a posh British version? You must keep them separated. I think that's what the refrain. <laughs> well, I think it's you got to keep them separated. You got to keep but them separated. For purposes of this conversation, you've got to try to keep them separated, <laughs> and then if they end up being together, so be. <laughs> Joe, is that on your radar? Uh, it is not, but it is now. It was not, but it is now, Ryan. Excellent. Um, any findings from this show? I'm also uh, obliged to mention the fact that we mentioned in a recent Soccer 101 episode the World Cup qualification process. And in the third round of ASC qualification, we have a group with South Korea, Iran, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon all in the same group. So uh, I don't know what the exact political facilities are between those relative nations, but it seems like there might be some stuff going on there. Yeah, and and Taylor, I I appreciate you bringing some of the sort of precedent for this, right? And I think that's important to note because I couldn't find, just like you guys, there's nothing out there about what UEFA or FIFA will do if these teams do meet. Like, going back to the question, if Russia and Ukraine meet in the knockout round, like you're saying it could have happened in Euro 2020, Ryan, there's not any previous action or previous regulations illustrated and pointed out by UEFA or FIFA as to what they do in that situation. What we know is that they won't let them meet in the group stage in club or national team competitions. And I would assume, and this is something that I'm sort of guessing on, but I would assume that in that draw fixing process, because that's what it is, they would make it very challenging for those two teams to meet in the knockout rounds. The odds of Russia and Ukraine both making it to a major tournament semifinal are so, so low and we ultimately didn't see that happen. I would be surprised if we saw something like that happen down the line because those two teams at both club and national team level, they have talent there, obviously, but they're not powerhouses by any stretch. I think UEFA can do a pretty solid job of avoiding those games for the foreseeable future. 
Indeed. And lest we forget, Ukraine did stoke some controversy at Euro 2020 by having yeah. a map of Ukraine on their kits. But it was one including Crimea, which was annexed by the Russians in 2014. So that may have heightened the hostility were they to have met uh, somewhat. Uh, Taylor, any more on this one before we jog on? Yeah, on this topic specifically, this is the obvious question. Ryan, I I was never like a huge boy band person, but I acknowledge that boy bands exist and I grew up with them. I'm going to guess that you and I have roughly similar, like, like, if there were people in your middle school listening to a boy band, I'm guessing it was like one of two. I would like to know what the formative boy band of Joe's youth would be. Oh, man. I, so this is this is when people are going to make fun of me because I was just talking about this with someone earlier today. I don't really listen to a lot of music, guys. So Joe, stop dodging the question. I'm, I'm literally <laughs> not dodging the question. Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm legitimately trying to think. Ryan, your musical knowledge is way better than mine. Boy bands of the 2000s more so. I'm, I'm guessing you're going to say One Direction. Would that be yeah, One Direction? One Direction certainly popular without a doubt. Um, that's the only, that's the only one that I could think of. I can't think of any other boy bands and certainly not many that I listen to Taylor. Joe, what is the first boy band that you can think of? Are there any that come to mind or that are like on your the, block? The so Beatles. Right? Oh, he got it. He got it. He got the correct answer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I tried. He, and he avoided my new kids on the block. So well done, Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's still not registering for me, Taylor. Sorry. I had a feeling. <laughs> Taylor, when you said there were two, were you thinking Backstreet Boys and new kids on the block? I was thinking Backstreet Boys and Insane, and we don't need to talk about uh, 98 Degrees. No, we do not. Uh, but the, the other one in the <laughs> UK would be Take That. Have you ever heard of Take That? They had Robbie Williams in Oh, there. I forgot all the, the weird British boy bands that, that, that pop up and then uh, uh, f- like fail out spectacularly. Yeah. You occasionally see playing in that Soccer Aid charity game, which was last week. There was probably some members of Take That in that, no doubt. No doubt it's not a boy band, by the way. Um, <laughs> no, let's no. get one more question in. Thank you very much for that question, Ian. This one is from Richard Rolson. This is not a bearholder question. A uh, bearholder out. Excuse me. This is not a bearholder out question, says Richard. This is more of a lessons learned from Wacky Love in Germany. I am wondering, says Richard, no matter how the next fifteen months go and whether the respective teams make the World Cup and have good tournaments, do you think the United States and England should move on from Greg Berhalter and Gareth Southgate? Whew. Is it more important to continue, or will new ideas and strategies make sense? I will start off by pitching in that I don't think uh, Gareth Southgate should be removed straight away. Uh, last two tournaments, semi-final and a final. Ergo, hence, therefore, going to win it in 2022. It's the path of progression. It's natural. It's going to happen. Um, so I think uh, he's in a good spot. But Gareth Southgate, from an England perspective, he is the Football Association's dream. He's very inoffensive. He gets the most out of the players, generally speaking. They play decent, half-entertaining soccer. There's harmony in the camp. He's a very hard-to-dislike person. Zero controversy about him, if he's even a little bit vanilla. So I don't think they're in a hurry to get rid of him. But I would say... Joe, surely a manager only goes if the results aren't there. That's the only reason to move them on, is it not? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Ryan. I don't, this question to me boils down to that last part. Is it more important to have continuity or do you need to have new ideas brought into the fold? And for me, that's a totally a a case-by-case basis kind of thing. If the results are there, like you're saying, Ryan, with England, I don't think it makes sense to move on from Gareth Southgate unless something insane happens behind the scenes or in the locker room, and then that's a different situation. So I think it totally depends. With Germany and with Love, 
they look like they need a bit of a refresh after Euro 2020. They had some really nice moments in that particular tournament, but having a fresh face to rebuild some relationships with players and bring in new talent, I think it's going to be good for them. And that that's their specific situation. Ryan, you've already talked about England's situation with the U.S., for me, it, it depends a lot about what the results are and how the team continues to progress under Greg Berhalter. The U.S. is in a very different situation talent-wise from England, and we've already talked about that earlier on in this show. So it's not a perfect comparison. It's possible that what Greg Berhalter is trying to do will help the U.S. reach their ceiling in a long-term way, but it depends on whether he's actually able to effectively implement that and what the progress is. We're still not exactly sure, even after a really exciting summer, we're not really sure where that project stands at the moment. And it's possible that with the U.S. continuing mediocre continuity, maybe doesn't have that value that it would be for England to keep Gareth Southgate around, which would be much more valuable. So for me, this is very much a case-by-case basis kind of thing. And I'm not sure we can take the lesson from Germany and apply it to every situation equally. Indeed. Uh, Taylor, what if Berhalter uh, breaks a COVID protocol, which as we know may or may not mean (laughs) he did something else? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's actually really good context for this question is that Weston McKinney has now been sent home with a game still to be played in this uh, round of qualifying, obviously missing the the game against Canada due to a COVID protocol violation. And like, so what happens next? Like, let's let's look at that for a minute, because I think that's a way to answer this question, because Ryan, to your point, thus far, Gareth Southgate hasn't had those those player fallings out. Like, yes, there's some players who haven't ended up making the team, or maybe there was some debate about Trent Alexander-Arnold and his value from Southgate's perspective. But we haven't had uh, like five and six players that are just never getting caught up and maybe should be, but it seems like there's bad blood. And this kind of group that seems like there's a, like, uh, what are they, uh, clicks forming in the locker room. Like, you don't hear that stuff with him. And so I think that is such an important part of, even if you're not winning the tournament, that everybody is happy and enjoys playing for the national team under Southgate. I think that's what makes the difference. And so... Looking at Weston McKinney's situation for a moment, let's say it is a bigger deal. Let's not go like full rumor here, but let's just say it ends up being like a sort of divide in the locker room. And so Weston McKinney is out of the team, but that leads to other players feeling upset or maybe he's brought back in and that leads to players being upset. And you have rifts that can open up and and divides that form and again, clicks that get created. I think that's a big, big problem for Jurgen Klinsmann or was a big problem for Jurgen Klinsmann and same for Bruce Arena when he came in. So if Berhalter can't sort of handle that and it becomes a more fractured team atmosphere, then yeah, I think like even even if things went well, I think there's an argument that you freshen it up to get players back into the squad and make sure that everybody is giving, being given a fair shake every few years. Because I think of a manager like Jorge Sampaoli at Chile who obviously set a, a sort of template for how that team was going to play and their style and approach – but when you have that level of intensity from a manager, by all accounts, it can be really difficult to kind of keep that going for years and years. But if you have managers who come in after Jorge Sampaoli and have similar philosophies and similar styles, and then they're bringing in those players who were maybe cast off by Sampaoli, but then they're brought back in and now they play a bigger role, and some players are going to fall by the wayside and the next manager brings them through. But if you're sort of sticking with a a basic approach that's been working for you, I think it's okay to change the manager, but I think it's also okay to keep them if that philosophy is intact, but so too is squad harmony. Joe, I'm not sure I buy the actual premise of Richard's question here in the, a lesson being learned from Love's reign in Germany. Uh, 15 years in charge, yes, it may not have ended uh, harmoniously, but, I mean, he was a very good manager for yeah. Germany, and 
I, I, all, all teams will have peaks and troughs throughout a 15-year period. I don't know whether we can learn that we shouldn't have a manager in a national team for 15 years ergo hence from that situation. Yeah, you're tossing up the Latin today, Ryan. I like it. Um, I didn't use I, it correctly, I think, but I tried. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I think if you tell any non-top 10, non-top 5 national team that they're going to have a manager for 15 years and you're going to win one World Cup in that period... I think a lot of at least one World Cup in that period. I think people are going to take that in a heartbeat. I think yeah. U.S. soccer would take that in a heartbeat. So, Ryan, I agree. I think the premise of of Richard's question might not be fully accurate. It is still interesting to think about, though, the value of continuity and the value of new and fresh ideas, and that I, I think has importance for federations and decision makers, people that are hiring managers. It's important for them to think about that question and try to apply it to their particular situation and working environment. But I agree. I mean, if, if you say, Berhalter, you're in charge for the next, what, 12 years and there's going to be one World Cup, I think every U.S. men's national team fan would take that. Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Dance with the girl you brung. Taylor, any other homespun sayings that we can sum this up with? Oscar Tabarez is the outlier. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's been at uh, Uruguay since 2006. And I think there are those personalities who, that's it. It's the, like when the team is built around the personality and that philosophy, I think it's okay to to stick with a manager if, if they're kind of continuing to shape the way your national team and your federation is going to approach soccer and development, then I think it also makes sense. And we've seen that with what, uh, Switzerland, I think, in recent years, or maybe Austria. I feel like Denmark and Greece for a while had sort of like long-standing managers, Iceland as well. So I think there is something to be said for if you have one person shaping the way young players are coming through at national team level, I think that that can also go a long way towards keeping somebody around for more than just one cycle. Yeah, and it's mirrored in domestic soccer as well. I think you could probably say that fella Wenger and that fella Ferguson did okay in Mm 15-year-plus reigns as well. Rain. Rain. I'm rolling them today. I'm not quite sure why. Jets, I, like I think that just about sums up our listener questions episode. Thank you very much to everybody who has submitted. And once again, totalsoccershow.com slash questions if you'd like to get involved. One more, though, from mm-hmm. Ed Ritter. Ed says, um, you might have to give me some context for this. He says, are you sure Ryan Bailey and Ryan Styles are different people? Says Ed. Um, Taylor, I, I'm not even sure that um, Joe's gonna know who ryan styles is either nope. i had to google him <laughs> yep there you go wow. for me he is um he was on whose line it is anyway the british and yep. the u.s versions but maybe more so he was on the tv yep. in the uk more because he did kfc adverts oh i thought you were gonna go drew carey show which is where i first i first met ryan styles and then when drew carey did whose line is it anyway he went to that one not knowing that he was his background was an improviser yeah he's a very very good improviser who can do lots of not even voices. Like he's got a few voices he does, but they're all very like pretty chipper, pretty high energy. Uh, and then I think are also all very clever. So yeah, Ryan, I see, I see the comparisons there. Yes. And <laughs> there we go. Good job. See, see, it's all working out. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, I'm trying to think of my favorite ones from him. He, he, it's him and Colin Mockery were the two that were, were outstanding. I think maybe he meant Harry Styles because he, you know, devilishly handsome. Maybe well, he was going there. That could be. That makes way more sense to me. That makes way more sense. I do wonder like what the impression is or voice is or thing you said that like made it click. Uh yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he's 62 years old, he's Canadian. Uh he's not yeah, I, I'm flattered yep. in many ways cuz he Two boxes ticked so far. <laughs> yep. I'm flattered, but also not flattered if that makes sense. Not by the Canadian <laughs> thing, more by the 62-year-old thing. But um 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Joe, Ryan Styles, fan? Yes. If he's anything yes. like you, Ryan Bailey, I'm a fan of Ryan Styles. Oh, well, that's very kind. And I do appreciate the comparison, Ed Ritter. You're very kind, sir. And Joe and Taylor, you both are very kind. And you're very good at doing words <laughs> I... into microphones on podcasts. <laughs> Taylor? Here's, here's, here's an example, Joe. Uh, in, in, regard, in, in response to the prompt, things that will always start a fight... Ryan Ryan Styles' entry was, you guys want to start a fight? And that feels like a Ryan Bailey sort of joke. That's that's funny. That's really that's really good. <laughs> Who hosted US Who's Line Is It Anyway? Drew Carey. Ah. It was Clive Anson in the UK. <laughs> Very good. Well, there you go. This is all before Joe was born, I'm sure. Oh, I'm still chuckling at the the comeback there. That's good. That's good. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your contribs in this listener question show. Even if we didn't quite get there with number 13 and number 12 for goalkeepers, I feel like we did just about. I mean, if you're going to abbreviate, you got to still roll the R. Shouldn't it be contribs? Uh, And with that in mind, right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you all for listening. Totes. Joe, thank you very much, sir. (laughs) Wonderful as always. You got it, Ryan. Listener, thank you so much. Bye. Listener. (laughs) 